Good morning. You guys doing well? Sounds like you are. What a, what a wonderful time that was of uh, worship in song, wasn't it? My goodness sakes, I almost can't think, you know, too deeply about the words of these songs because I'll, I won't even be able to get through the message here this morning because it, they just overwhelm me. Overwhelmed by the goodness of God and... Uh, it's evident, you guys sound like a choir this morning. I mean, so it's evident that you really love Jesus and you really are thankful for all that he's done for you. I can hear it in your songs of praise to him this morning. What a great time. It's awesome to be together and to worship our Savior. Recovering All is our current teaching series, and we're going to talk about money this morning. It's where we land here in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 8 through 20. And let me begin by reading to you uh, this. I got from one of the, the commentators that I was studying from and very current, very up to date. Listen to what he says. Class conflict between the rich and poor is seemingly constant and only increased during an election season. It is common for each side to demonize the other. Those leaning politically left will paint a caricature of the rich as greedy, unscrupulous people who rob the poor and oppress the needy without regard for their well-being. Those leading politically right will conversely paint the poor as lazy, unmotivated people who elect politicians that will fleece the hard-working rich through taxes only to give away their money to those who did not earn and do not deserve it. This conflict is, I mean, you guys are, you guys are familiar with that tug-of-war that's current in our culture today. All you have to do is turn on the news and listen to the debates and all that's being said out there. This conflict is so deep in the roots of Western cultures that even Christians can uh, get into the mudslinging and the name calling. And you can cherry pick uh, Bible verses to support both sides quite easily, but the problem is much deeper and more complex. Our tendency is to be reductionist. We kind of reduce everything to simple solutions and, and, and actually the problem is much deeper. And we're going to look at what the problem is in our culture as it relates to money. Take a look at your sermon notes there. Two kinds of rich, two kinds of poor. There's two kinds of rich in the Bible. When you study the Bible, two kinds of rich, righteous rich and unrighteous rich. And then there's two kinds of poor, righteous poor and unrighteous poor. So it really comes down to whether you're going to be righteous or, or unrighteous. Matthew 6.24, this is what Jesus said. Jesus uh, said, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. I think it's on your notes. You cannot serve God and money. Now, why did he say that? Because he's actually talking about idolatry. So why did he all of a sudden just drop money in there? Because I believe that money is the number one rival God in our culture today. And basically what he's saying here is that everyone has to live for something, whatever that something is, ultimately becomes the Lord of your life, whether you want to call it that or not. Next uh, verse, 1 Timothy 6.10, should be there on your notes, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. I've, I've heard that misquoted a lot. Oftentimes you hear people say, money is the root of all evil. How many have ever heard it like that? Yeah, well, that's not true. This is actually what it says. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. 
So if we have a love for money, it's going to be very destructive to us. Hebrews 13, 5, it says, keep your life free from the love of money. Are you familiar with the rest of that verse? Anybody familiar with the rest of that verse? Verses 5 and 6 is pretty profound, pretty amazing. How do you cure this love for money? A love for Jesus. And he will never, ever leave you or forsake you. He will give you a significance and a security that money can never give you, is really what it says there. It's sweet. It's a good verse. It's just like, oh my goodness. And that's a promise to those of us that have put our faith in Jesus Christ. He will never leave us or forsake us. He's always there. And that's the cure to our money problems. And so that's pretty much the solution. So let's just uh, go ahead and pray. And we'll uh, go home now because that's, uh, that's all we need to do. No, actually, there's, there's much more in, in this. Now, so the point here is that whether you are rich or poor, if you love money, it will wreak havoc in your life. And the problem is... The problem is, is that the 25 years I've been in ministry is that I've had people come up to me and they've struggled, people that have said, admitted that they struggled with lust. Those have come up to me, I've heard people say they struggle with, uh, uh, with anger and pride, but I have never, ever, ever heard anybody come up to me and say, I really struggle with greed. And I think it's because it's, it's one of those uh, problems that's so hidden in our lives. Greed is one of the hardest sins to detect in our lives, particularly living in a, in a, in a society that's, uh, that we are, we are consumed by capitalism and commercialism and consumerism. And so me, greedy? Of course not. I'm not greedy. And I think it's hard to detect whether or not we really love money. As it says here, don't do that. Don't love money. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. Keep your life free from the love of money. So how do we know? How do we know? In fact, Jesus gave this warning. Remember the two brothers that were arguing about the inheritance? And then Jesus said, beware of all, beware of covetousness. Beware of greediness. Beware of loving money. Because real life and real living does not consist in the abundance of the things that we possess. It's not in stuff. It's not in stuff. And so, how do we know that? Well, that's what we're going to look at. And I think Ecclesiastes does really a great job in helping us to understand this. So, the love of money has a hold on you. We're going to look at some characteristics of how you know that the love of money has a hold on you. And then we're going to end by talking about, really, the love of money is broken when you realize. And at the very end of this text is, is perhaps, I think, one of, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, it's just, it's tucked away there, and it's just, it's an astounding verse. Don't look, don't look, okay. Okay, you can go ahead and look. In fact, let me just, let me read the verse to you. I could quote it to you. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Oh my goodness, that is a sweet verse. That is a good verse. And so we're going to get there eventually, okay? But that's where we're headed. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Let's ask for God's help that he will uh, illuminate his word to us through the work and the power of his Holy Spirit. And, and then we'll, you'll, you can see where we're going to go. We're going to kind of read a few verses and we'll talk about it, read a few verses and then talk about it and work through our notes that way. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We love worshiping you in song. And now as we worship you in scripture, God, speak to us, we pray. Father God, all that we have has been given by you. And all that we do with what we have is accountable to you and will be rewarded by you. The Bible makes that very clear. Help us to see that money can either be a blessing or a curse. It can be a tool 
in the hands of you, our God of grace, or it can be a doorway to, to bad and dangerous things. Help us to see that money problems are always heart problems. They're deeper than the size of our paycheck and the details of our budget. May our hearts rest contented as you rescue and protect us by your amazing grace. We thank you that your way and plan for our lives are infinitely and eternally better than ours because you are perfect in love and wisdom and power. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. So let's take a look at this. Uh, the love of money has a hold on you. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, starting at verses 8 and 9. Let's read those first two verses. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. Don't be shocked that there's a lot of injustice going on around you, is what he says. For the high official is watched by a higher and there are yet higher ones over them. What he's saying here is that the, the, the love of money is gonna, leads to loss of integrity. This is a, a corrupt bureaucracy that he's describing here. These officials are making themselves rich by oppressing the poor. And then in verse 9, it's almost as if he's using a little sarcasm. He says, but this is gain for a land in every way. A king committed to cultivating fields. It's almost like he's saying, at least the fields are harvested. Or, bad government is better than no government, is, in essence, is what he's saying here. Now, here's the point that I think we can draw uh, from this truth. So, the love of money has a hold on you when you disadvantage the community for your own advantage, rather than disadvantage yourself for the advantage of the community. We talked about this during our Reboot Financial, uh, we, that Reboot series, and one of the parts that we were rebooting at the beginning of the year was our lives financially. And I made this point very clear, so let me, let me make it again. Proverbs 10, 16, it says, the wage or the wealth of the righteous leads to life, the wealth or the gain of the wicked to sin. So when you read through Proverbs, it makes this distinction between wicked uh, people and righteous people. And so a richest person disadvantages, a wicked person disadvantages the community to advantage himself. They see their money belonging only to themselves, is what's, what we see in these two, first two verses of our text. So as a business owner, if you ask the highest price you possibly can, pay the lowest salaries you possibly can in order to get the highest profit you possibly can, the Bible would say that you're wicked. And... Uh, Basically, you're answering the question, how does this business benefit me only? And when you study the scriptures as it relates to finances, what the Bible says about money will disturb the comfortable. There's no doubt about it. But, but when you look throughout, particularly Proverbs, but throughout the scripture, a righteous person will disadvantage himself for the advantage of the community. They see their money as belonging to themselves and the community, that is their, their own family, but also their church family, and then their, the human family, the family at large. So the more money a righteous person or business owner makes, the more generous the prices for his customers and the more generous the salaries of his employees. They will share the profits rather than take more for themselves without benefiting others. They will enrich their employees and customers. 
And they, they're answering the question, how does this business benefit me and the community? Now, can you imagine if, if everybody here in America began to live by that principle? It'd be pretty amazing. And, uh, but it comes down to really the love of money, and it tends to create this lack of integrity, and then before long, money begins, becomes your highest goal, and that's what can happen. And so, that's the first thing. The love of money has a hold on you when you, when you disadvantage the community for your own advantage. And, uh, and so here's the next one. Look at verse 10. It says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. So just stop there just for a minute. Let me just bring you up to speed because remember last week we talked about worship? You guys remember? Great, great time, great baptism service, but we, we talked about worship. And worship is the ascribing of ultimate worth and value to something in a way that it engages and energizes your whole being, your whole person. And if God isn't at the center of your life, then something else is. That was the kind of the big idea. And so he was just saying, hey, take God seriously. So we worked through this idea of worship, and now he moves to money, which I believe is, is the number one uh, competing counterfeit God in our culture today. And now what he's doing is, is he's wanting us to, because we don't often do this, especially here in America today, we're very intellectually lazy, but he's pushing us to begin to think out the implications of whatever substitute God we have built our lives upon, and he's wanting us to see how flimsy that is, how weak that is, how it's going to let us down in the long run. So, okay, so you take, take money, for instance. If you want to replace God with money, think out the implications to, to the, the furthest part of your life, and guess what? Money, in the long run, is going to be unfulfilling and, and terribly unforgiving because you'll never have the amount of money that you think that you need or you deserve. And, and ultimately, when you do get it, it doesn't satisfy like Jesus like knowing God and ascribing to him ultimate worth and value. So, okay, so that's kind of the context here. And, of course, as he works through all the implications of money's going to let you down, he's going to end by that sweet verse, and there's a couple before that that just says, are you kidding? Come back to him. Come back to God. Make him and place him at the center of your life because he's the one. Only he can satisfy the deepest longing of, of your soul. And so, so in verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity, emptiness. So, so you know that the love of money has a hold on your life. When you believe that money can be or buy your happiness, and you lose your contentment in Christ. I've been working through a book by a guy by the name of Randy Alcorn. He wrote the book on on heaven, which is a phenomenal book, but he also has recently, within the last couple of years, wrote a book on happiness. It's also a great book. But this is what he says. While many would say that money can't buy happiness, nearly everyone wants to test the theory. <laughs> you guys agree with that? I, I do. Okay, I want to test the theory, but I've got plenty of money. And, uh, and you do too, more than likely, living here in America today. However, this is what he says. He says, uh, most people believe that they would become happy if only they had more money. However, lottery winners provide a telling case study of what happens when people's financial dreams come true. And then he goes through a number of case studies, and if you've watched any of those TV shows, you know. Crash and burn. Individual experiences may differ, but it's fair to say that over the long haul, personal 
happiness is rarely increased by gaining a windfall of money. Because money cannot satisfy the deepest longing of our soul. We were created for God. The Bible makes this clear that there is a contentment. Now listen to me because we're going to talk about contentment next week. Because that's where he takes us in the study. There is a contentment in Christ that no good circumstance can give to you and no bad circumstance can take away from you. Now think about that just for a minute because... Because oftentimes our discontentment is because of our circumstances or our lack of money or any number of things like that. And that, that is told to us throughout Scripture, but particularly in the fourth chapter of Philippians. Remember Paul in prison? And remember that favorite verse of Paul? Or my, my favorite verse, maybe it wasn't his favorite verse, but <laughs> my favorite verse, maybe your favorite verse too. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You guys familiar with that? Fourth chapter? Well, guess what? That's in the context of contentment. That's what he's talking about. I've learned to be content regardless of what's going on in my life. Now, how do I know if I'm discontent and, and I actually believe that money can be or buy my happiness? Well, here's the next fill in the blank. You're in debt. You're in debt. That's American. Uh, we, we see the discontentedness. With all the money we have, we're, we're in debt up to our eyeballs. And our government, oh my goodness, it's through the roof. It just shows you our discontentment. And so, when you believe that debt is a lifelong friend rather than a short-term visitor, that would be evidence of the fact that probably the love of money has a hold on you. And let me explain what that means when I talk about debt. Proverbs 22.7, the borrower is the slave to the lender. So, if you find yourself buying depreciating items on the credit system, such as big screen TV, furniture, going, you know, going out to eat, that's not very wise, my wife and I, when we first moved into our, uh, when we built our house and we moved into the house, it, we went about three to four years without furniture. Of course, the kids loved it. We turned the main living room area into UFC wrestling championship. You know, we, we'd get in there and we'd wrestle, and they, they were bummed out when we got furniture. But, uh, but I mean, we weren't going to go into debt. I'm not going to pay interest on something that's going to be depreciating and be worn out by the time we get it paid for. That doesn't make any sense. So when you do that... Or you don't know the difference between plague debt or tool debt. You guys know the difference? Tool debt would be like a home mortgage, education, expanding your business within reason. But plague debt is undue, creates undue pressure, high interest, no valuable asset to show. Or here's another one. Here's some advice that I've given for years. Every, every car loan should be shorter than the, uh, than the last until you can pay cash. You should be actually working towards paying cash for your cars. Even if you have to drive a moped, okay? And uh, I mean, that's what you should be thinking about, not looking at the, oh, look at this, hey, a new model came out. I and mean, that's what they do. They hook us and, and then we're paying 20 years on, the, on this car and, and then we're trading it in for a brand new one. And you've got to work that out for yourself, but that's, that's what you're thinking about. And then here's another one too, and this is where I've seen a lot of financial issues, is where, and my wife and I, we, we drove our stake when we, we had one house we moved into and then we built our own home on an acre, and which has saved us tons of money. I was the general contractor for that. And, but we drove our state. We said, this is, we're going to build this house just how we want it. And we're never going to move from this point. And so do you think we built the house just the way we wanted it? 
No, because after we built it, we realized there was other things that we should have done. But we were, we were going to say, hey, we're going to stay content with that. And we have. And we stayed there. But what happens oftentimes is when people move and, and so that you start a 30-year and then a couple more years, you move and you, you start another 30-year. And then you move again and you start another 30-year. And you're never going to get ahead. And by the way, we had a 15-year on the home that we're currently in. And we've been in that home for now 27 years, so do the math. We paid that thing a long time ago, and we probably saved ourselves. Literally, we did the, the numbers, hundreds of thousands of dollars because of that. It's just being wise with the money, the resources that God has given us. So one mortgage loan per customer, move as often as you want, but pay enough to keep the mortgage uh, the same. So here's, the, here's what it is. The goal is to be debt-free. You don't need to be in debt. You shouldn't be in debt. I understand there's a lot of different circumstances that can play into that. And that's how we've, my wife and I have lived our life. That's how the Board of Elders we do here at Desert Breeze. We own from here all the way around and we need to move, we need to build the rest of this out because we're just busting at the seams. We had 40% growth since we've moved in here and um, it's just been crazy. But we're not going into debt. We're not going to go into debt. And we're not going to beat the sheep. You know what I mean? Okay. Thank you. Just say thank you. Because we don't do that. We don't do that here. We've never done that here. We don't even pass the plate. Most people don't even figure out we don't pass the plate. Because we want you to give for the right reasons. I don't want you to give under compulsion or grudgingly. God loves what kind of a giver? Cheerful. That's the response of someone who knows Christ and what Christ has done for them. Yes. Oh, here. Yeah, I want to support all that Jesus is about and what he's doing in people's lives. And so, so we've got Dare You to Move 2.5. If you want to be a part of that, fantastic. If not, it'll just take us 50 years to build this out. No, it won't take us that long. I don't know how long it's going to take. We've, just, we've trusted God with all of that. We're going to continue to trust him. And he's going to lead and guide us and, and do what we need to do. But that's been the, the policy and the way that we've kind of done business here. And we're going to continue to do it that way. Imagine what God's people could do to extend God's kingdom if we were debt free. Now, let me, take this, uh, let me take this into the spiritual realm just for a minute. If you know Jesus, you are living a spiritually debt free life right now. Spiritually debt free. Can you imagine that? I mean, don't imagine it. Live it. That if you know Jesus, you are living a spiritually debt-free life now. Romans 8.1, for there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Pretty amazing way to live, even more so than the financial debt-free way of living. Verse 11, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. What he's saying here is when a salary raise comes along, up goes the lifestyle and related expenses. We tend to keep pushing the bar up higher. Hey, I, made it. I got a living. I, I, I had a raise of, uh, I got a, got a raise standard so we can raise our standard of living now or we can buy more stuff or I've always wanted to buy these things. That's what he's talking about here. So when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Uh, New Living Translation puts it this way. So what good is wealth except perhaps to watch it slip through your fingers? So here's the idea, I believe, and it's part of your notes here. So uh, you know that the love of money has a hold on your life when raising your standard of living is more important than paying off debt and raising your standard of giving. 
Matthew 6, 21 says, where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. And then verse 12, it says, uh, sweet is the sleep of a laborer. Notice this, whether he eats little or much. So it's not really based on how much he has, but he just has his, his hard work just creates a sweetness. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. So you know that money, the love of money has a hold on you when you have inordinate anxiety and guilt about money. When you have inordinate anxiety and guilt about money. Most people are guilt spenders. We spend money on something and go, oh man, I maybe shouldn't have, uh, shouldn't have bought that. Uh, I need to change. And why, why shouldn't you have bought that? You should know what you should buy and what you shouldn't buy. You shouldn't be doing it out of guilt and then when you do it, you feel guilty about that. Most people are guilt spenders. Should Christians feel guilty? Yeah, there's sometimes we should when we, we throw money away. We're not using the resources that God has given to us appropriately. We should not feel unnecessary guilt. There's a difference between true guilt and false guilt. But there's three reasons people feel anxious and guilty about money. One is that they don't give faithfully. This is what your plan should look like. They don't give faithfully. They don't save systematically. You should be saving. We'll talk a, a little bit more about that in a minute. Save systematically, and they don't spend strategically. And so if you have a written spending plan, uh, it'll keep you from feeling guilty about your spending. It will free you up from guilt in spending because you will, you'll know, no, we saved up for that. that therefore, yeah, that's where we were going to put our money. That's how we're going to spend it. And you can feel okay about that if it's part of that plan. Verse 13, there is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. So this is someone that's just hanging on to their wealth. So you know that money has a hold on your life. The love of money has a hold on your life when you are not generous with your wealth, is what he's saying here. Notice it says, riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. So when you are not generous with your wealth. Proverbs eleven twenty four through 25, it says this. It says, one gives freely, to talk about being generous, yet grows all the richer. How's that? And when you, when you do the math, you actually, when you give money away, you have less money. But it's saying here in the scriptures, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Isn't that interesting? Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. So the scripture over and over again really shows us that generosity not only validates my faith, puts my money where my mouth is, but it brings supernatural blessing. Supernatural blessing to our life. So generous people will give based on New Testament practices, we'll give consistently, here's your next fill in the blank, consistently, willingly, joyfully, sacrificially, and expectantly. And I gave you all the verses there that kind of represent that in the New Testament. So how much should I give away? Well, there's two rules of thumb. In the Old Testament, every believer was required to give 10%. 10% would represent 10% of your uh, income. So if you make 100 bucks, you give 10 bucks. That's, that's really what 10% uh, 
means, and, and this was commended by Jesus in the New Testament, Matthew 23, 23. So if you decide to give uh, 10%, congratulations, you have attained Old Testament standards. And, uh, but what's interesting is that, uh, let me ask you this question, have we received more of God's revelation, truth, and grace than the Old Testament believers or less? Absolutely more. Are we more debtors to grace than they were or less? Absolutely, more. So in the New Testament, Jesus Christ didn't tithe his blood. He gave it all. He sacrificed. And so when your heart is smitten by the sacrificial love of Jesus, it changes you. You begin to want to give consistently, willingly, joyfully, sacrificially, and expectantly. Key word really there, sacrificially. What does it mean to give sacrificially? It means that you give away so much that there is a measurable sacrifice in how you live. You should be giving so much of your money to ministry and to the poor that it makes a measurable difference in your lifestyle and the vacations you take, the house you live in, the cars you drive, the clothes you wear. So there should be a measurable difference in your life. That's what that means, sacrificially. So my wife and I have practiced... Uh, 10% uh, ever since we've been married. We'll be going on 40 years. This, in, in a couple years, it'll be 39 this year. But, uh, but we've practiced uh, giving 10%. But we all, we've also given to offerings, have offerings. For instance, we give to the Dare You to Move 2.5. We also give to the, to the missions efforts that we have here. And then we also give to missions efforts that are outside of here. And then also we give alms uh, through when we see need, needs around us or in other families, we can give that. And we can do that because we live basically a debt-free life. And it is amazing. We absolutely love being able to live that way and do that. And, and, to, and it's about Jesus. It ain't about us. It's about his work in our life. We're just tickled to death that we can do that. I want you to be able to do the same. I love you guys, and I want you to have that freedom in your life. To, to have that kind of freedom in your life. And that's, that's what that's about. And not motivated out of, out of fear or pride, but out of a heart smitten by the beauty of Jesus and who he is. That's the motivation. That's why we don't pass a plate. And you can read more about it, go online, and why we don't pass a plate. Pick up a brochure in the foyer. Because we really want people to, to be motivated appropriately. And so verse 14, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. So this guy not only hangs on to all of his riches, but he throws it away on a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. So he obviously doesn't diversify his investments. Investments are good. There's kind of three primary investments. Uh, there might be other ways of investing, but stocks, land, and, and having your own business. But, there's, but you, you, there really needs to be a diversification of that because he seems to put all of his money in, in this one basket and he breaks it and it's all over and has nothing to show for it. It's kind of what he's saying here. But I think it's much, it's, much, uh, it's much deeper than that. Here's your next point in your notes. So you know that money has, uh, the love of money has a hold on your life. When you claim to be a victim of unforeseeable circumstances when in reality you are a willing participant, willing participant lacking foresight about future inevitables. Yeah, that's a big, big statement there. What in the world is that about? It says in Proverbs 22.3, the prudent sees danger and hides himself. So the prudent sees danger ahead and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. You guys know that our country is headed for some sort of a financial crash. We're like trillions and trillions of dollars in debt. You know we're headed somewhere really bad. 
So, hopefully you're trusting God and you're living according to his uh, financial principles here. Uh, how, many, how many have a car? Have a car? How many know that your car, you're, you're going to need tires here pretty soon, probably? Huh? If you keep driving it the way you're driving it. <laughs> I've seen some of you and how you drive it. How you drive that car. Hey, could you take the DV sticker off the back window if you're going to keep... <laughs> you're going to keep driving like that and use those hand gestures, you know what I mean? How many know you're going to have to do some maintenance on that car? How many have a home? Have a home? How many know you're going to probably have to repair that roof? Going to get a new roof? How, how many have an air conditioning unit on that roof? That can get pretty costly. You guys know where I'm going with that. Those things don't just creep up on you and all of a sudden, wow, the air conditioning went out. We don't know what we're going to do. Yeah, you knew that that was going to go bad eventually, didn't you? Say, come on. Come on, just quit living from paycheck to paycheck. Realize you got some stuff in the future you're going to have to pay for. And, and start planning. That's what that means. You need to have about three to six months of expenses saved up along with money for maintenance, health care, and retirement plan. You better be putting some money away for retirement. And, and that's all part of, that, that honors God with your finances. That's all part of the plan. And then, and you know that money, the love of money has a hold on you when you're not living according to God's biblical financial principles. Here they are. We talked about them back in our Reboot series. I'll just lay them out here and you can kind of work them into your life. But a budget, a budget is telling your money where it's, where it's supposed to go rather than finding out where it went, okay? And then accounting is just record keeping. It's, it's actually keeping track of every time you stop by Starbucks or, or Circle K to buy that thirst buster, you know you know, that adds up over time. You just keep records. And then self-control. By the way, you need self-control in our billion-dollar industry that pounds you and trying to convince you that happiness is one purchase away. Self-control keeps you from those impulsive, compulsive spending habits. I mean, I had a terrible time, and mine, mine was books in the early days of our, of our marriage. And oh my goodness, I'd go, I couldn't go to a bookstore, a Bible bookstore. Just like, man, I wanted to buy every book on the shelf. And I really struggled. It was very compulsive, impulsive, and so I had to plan it out. And, and so that was, that was real hard for me. But I had to learn some self-control. I had to find out what was causing that. And I had to look and find out what true wealth is. True wealth will give you better self-control. We're going to talk about that at the end of the message. And then also generosity. Now, you can't give your way into financial blessing if you're violating these other uh, biblical principles. I heard a TV evangelist say this one time. He said... Whatever debt you have on your credit card, if you'll take that amount and charge it on that card and give it to our ministry, God will take care of all of that debt. Praise God. That's asinine. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And so people, when you hear these televangelists say, you can give your way out of debt, but if you're violating other biblical principles here, no, you can't. What are you thinking? You, you can't do that. And, and a lot of the promises that they make are just outlandish anyway, and you need to go back to what the Bible actually says, okay? There's a lot of spinning of scriptures. So these are the biblical principles. Budget accounting, self-control, true wealth, generosity. And then verses 15 through 17. As he came from his mother's womb... He shall go again, naked he came, and shall take nothing for his toil. 
that he may carry away in his hand. So he's trying, he's pushing us out. He says, okay, okay, big deal. You, you piled a big pile of money. You can't take that with you. You're going to die. So he's wanting us to think it out to its furthest implication. And he says, taking nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Notice, notice the end of this story here. Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and in much vexation and sickness and anger. Here's a dude that piled up a bunch of money and he lived for money and he was a workaholic and he's sitting in the dark all alone depressed. That's, that's, that's the point here. And the point is that he invested in the temporal and that's all going to be gone and he should have invested in the, in the eternal. Interesting uh, story I came across. So you can't take it with you. And uh, there was a man who worked all of his life and saved as much as he could. He loved money more than anything. And just before he died, he said to his wife, when I die, I want you to take all my money and put it in the casket with me. I'm going to take my money to the afterlife with me. And his wife promised she would. And at his funeral, just before the undertakers closed the casket, his wife put a box in the casket. The undertakers shut the casket and rolled it away. And the wife's friend said, I know you weren't foolish enough to put all that money in there with that man. And she said, I, I can't lie. I promised him I would put that money in the casket with him. You mean to tell me you put the money in the casket with him? Her friend asked. I sure did, said the wife. I wrote him a check. <laughs> there you go. So you can't take it with you. Here's our big last point under when you know that money, the love of money has a hold on your life. When you fail to see that beyond necessities, the greatest investment, the greatest investment of your money is getting people into heaven. Your greatest investment is getting people into heaven. Matthew 6, 19 through 21, it says, where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. It starts that, that verse by saying this. Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal. Or where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. The way you store up treasure in heaven is by investing in getting people there. Three things happen when I give financially to further God's kingdom. I help people become Christians. I not only get them into heaven, but I get heaven into them. That's called sanctification and that process of sanctification. And so I help people become Christians. I make friends for eternity and then God blesses me more as I continue to give and try to bring as many people as I can. That's always been the heart of, of Desert Breeze. There's a movie, I don't know if you've seen the movie, it's called Schindler's List. Anybody see the movie before? At the very end of the movie, it's just moving, it's so stirring, it's just, a, it's a bit troubling. But uh, based on a true story, Liam Neeson is Oscar Schindler, a, a German businessman in Poland, who sees an opportunity to make money from the Nazis' rise to power by staffing his plant with the free labor of Jews from a prison camp. His greed is eventually overcome by his conscience as he realizes that his factory is the only thing preventing his staff from being shipped to the death camps. 
By the time Germany falls to the Allies, Schindler has lost his entire fortune and he has saved 1,100 people from likely death. At the end of the movie, he is overcome with grief, realizing how much money he wasted on luxuries that could have used that he could have that could have been used to save more lives from the Nazi genocide. It's a moving scene that I just like. Oh Lord, I want I want to use everything that you've given me and leverage it for you and your glory. Because when I come before you, I want to hear from my Savior, well done, good and faithful servant. I know you want that too. Not out, of, not out of fear or pride, but out of a heart captivated by the love of Jesus. I mean, how do you come to terms with someone who has completely given his life for you and to you without you completely giving and living your life for him. That's the gospel, and that's our response to the gospel. And so the love of money is broken when you realize, and that's, that's part of it. That's a good segue. So the power of sin's promise, the reason why we spend money crazy and we don't do it according to God's word is because, because it offers a promise of happiness. We actually think we'll be happier. But the, but the power of sin's promise is broken by the power of God's promise. No, no, if you live according to God's principles, this is where happiness is. Holiness and happiness are one and the same pursuit. And uh, fear and pride... Fear and pride can restrain the heart, but love transforms the heart. So this isn't about fear and pride motivating us. That's, that's wrong motivation. It's not going to last. But it's having our hearts motivated out of the love of Jesus. Be careful, by the way, when you hear pastors. I hear a lot of pastors uh, motivate people out of pride or even fear. It's not fear or pride that should be motivating us about anything in our life. It always should be the love of God that's captured us. And this is where he ends. I mean, this is just absolutely beautiful. I've got about four minutes to talk about this. This is just wonderful. I've been captivated by this little bit here uh, this last week, and this is one of my favorite verses. Let me read the text here. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. That's the key phrase, that God has given him for this is his light, his lot. And then verse 19, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them. So God isn't against us enjoying our lives. He's given us these things to enjoy to enjoy them, that's another key phrase, and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. Another key phrase there. Oh, and here it is. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Man, that is a wonderful verse. See, here, here, everybody look up here just for a minute. You know what? I've done some really stupid stuff in my life. I'm sure you have too. It's called sin. Okay, And I know that there, people have done stupid things against me and they've sinned against me. Well, you know what that verse tells me? That all the sins that we've committed and all the sins that have been committed against us, I mean, that's what he says here, for he will not much remember the days of his life. It's kind of like, yeah, because, why? Because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. 
What's he talking about there? What are we often occupied with? Anything and everything other than joy in our heart because of the presence of God. If he's talking about the best gift we get from God is his presence. We have him. We have him in our lives. That's amazing. I lose track of that. I mean, I don't live in the reality of that like I should. And when I do, unspeakable and glorious joy. And that's, that's what he wants us, that's where he wants us to take us. So your ability to get money or anything else comes from God. And that should produce within us gratitude. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Perfect example of this uh, violation of that verse is um, Super Bowl 50, Cam Newton. What a big crybaby. Any uh, Carolina fans in the house? Okay. Sorry, I just uh, insulted your, your main man there. But hey, here's what I thought. And the reason why I thought he was just a, such a big baby, and it kind of goes along with this verse. Doesn't Cam know where he got those gifts? Doesn't he know that God gave him those abilities? I don't think he does. Because when we don't know that, then our success goes to our head. And what happens when we face failure? It goes to our heart. See, if we think that all that we have, we earn this because I'm a great person, then that success is going to inflate us and failure is going to deflate us. See, if you misplace your identity and you put it in money or possessions or things, then, then when you have a lot, you're going to have a superiority attitude. And when you don't have much, you're going to have an inferiority attitude rather than to put it in, in Christ. Pride will cause you to gripe and grumble. But humility, recognizing that it all comes from him, it will create a gratitude in you regardless of what you have. Regardless of what you have. Here's the next one. Your ability to enjoy money or anything else comes from God. This should create pleasure. 1 Timothy 4, 4 through 5. Everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. This is from uh, Steve DeWitt's book, Eyes Wide Open, Enjoying God and Everything. Listen to what he says. Christians who properly place God as the source and goal of the things they enjoy will find themselves enjoying those things even more. The way we as believers relish created beauties ought to outstrip that of unbelievers since we neither find our identity in them nor hold on to them as ultimate. A Christian's God-focused enjoyment of creation makes it taste better, look better, feel better, smell better, and sound better. So this afternoon when you're eating that big old juicy hamburger from Five Guys or wherever you like going, do it to the glory of God. Go, thank you God for taste buds and this delicious whatever you're eating and do it for the glory of God. Here's the last, last point. There we go. Your ability to enjoy God beyond anything else comes from God. Join contentment. We're going to talk a lot about this. We'll work this out a little bit more next week because we're going to talk about contentment. But, um, but Psalm 4, 7, it says, You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Now, how does he do this? What is he talking about here? Well, I think he's talking about here the habitual conscious communion with God that we have. 
And that was accomplished, as it tells us in 2 Corinthians 8 9, for you know the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. This is the best gift God gives to us himself. And this is a joy and a contentment that all the money in the world can't buy. So come back next week and we'll talk about contentment. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, our ability to get money or anything else comes from you. And may that humble us and fill us with gratitude. Our ability to enjoy money or anything else also comes from you. And may we find greater pleasure in the many blessings of life beyond those, beyond those who don't know you. But most of all, may we enjoy the greatest treasure and pleasure of life, which is knowing you and walking with you and experiencing you in our lives, giving us a joy and a contentment that all the money in this world can't buy. May you be most glorified in us as we are most satisfied in you. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. amen. Love you guys. Have a great week.